What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 9 of the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into the discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Loveland, it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. This episode wasn't recorded on our usual location, on the lands of the Kulin Nation, but was instead recorded at the University of New South Wales, Kensington campus. As such, I'd like to acknowledge the Bedigal people of the Eora Nation as the traditional owners of the land on which this episode was recorded. I'd also like to pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging, as well as to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening to this episode of the ERRR. This episode we're talking to Andrew Martin. Andrew is Scientia Professor, Professor of Educational Psychology and Co-Chair of the Educational Psychology Research Group in the School of Education at the University of New South Wales. Andrew specialises in motivation, engagement and achievement and quantitative research methods. He's also Honorary Research Fellow in the Department of Education at the University of Oxford, Honorary Professor in the School of Education and Social Work at the University of Sydney, Fellow of the APA and the list goes on. Although the bulk of his research focuses mainly on motivation, engagement and achievement, Andrew is also published in important cognate areas such as Aboriginal and Indigenous education, gifted and talented, academic resilience and academic buoyancy, adaptability, personal best, pedagogy, parenting and teacher-student relationships. Andrew's research also bridges other disciplines through assessing motivation and engagement in sport, music and work. Andrew's placed first in the most recent international rankings of the most published educational psychologists, he's written over 250 peer-reviewed journal articles, chapters in books, published conference papers, and his three books on parenting in particular have been published in five languages. Andrew has been listed in the Bulletin magazine's Smart 100 Australians, and his doctoral dissertation in particular achieved a lot of acclaim. It was judged the most outstanding PhD in education in Australia by the Australian Association of Research in Education. Andrew really knows how to make an impact and it's an inspiring story that we hear in this episode about how he went from a less than academically focused teenage boy to the current heights of his academic career. The paper that Andrew nominated for this episode of the ERRR was entitled Using Load Reduction Instruction, LRI, to Boost Motivation and Engagement. The central concept of this paper, load reduction instruction, based upon cognitive load theory, offers a basis for critiquing different instructional approaches and helps us to move beyond simplistic comparisons of traditional versus progressive or didactic versus dialogic teaching techniques. The LRI approach enables both direct and guided discovery approaches to be considered effective and provides a structured framework for determining under what conditions each of these approaches is most suitable. It's a crack of an episode and covers some of the topics that have most powerfully shaped my own teaching journey to date. So, without further ado, let's jump straight into episode 9 of the ERRR with Andrew Martin. Andrew Martin, welcome to the Education Research Reading Room. Thank you very much. Cool. Uh, The question we usually start off with is, if you're at a party... And you meet someone and you say, hi, I'm Andrew. And, and the person asks you, hi, Andrew, what is it that you do? What is your answer? Uh, so, my answer is that I'm a, uh, I'm a researcher in educational psychology and uh, that I focus on uh, students' motivation, engagement, achievement and learning. 
and um, and I guess in more lay terms, I uh, I'm interested in um, in how to help kids work to their academic potential and look at uh, what uh, switches students on and what switches students off. Cool, very one of the more concise answers we've had here in the ETFL. Could you tell us a little bit about how you came to be working on the the stuff? You've done maybe a bit of your research history, perhaps if you had some jobs before research and, and things like that. Yeah, well, I sure. I guess like, uh, well, certainly being in the in the education game, uh, realistically, I think my career started when I was a student myself, and so, uh, and I was a pretty I was a pretty average sort of student at school, and uh, and uh, and I did my my developmental duty of goofing off in in uh, the middle years of adolescence to a point that. At the end of year ten, uh, my uh, my school wasn't sure if I uh, was was actually surprised that I intended to go on to year eleven, and uh, and so that was a bit of a bombshell for my parents at parent teacher night, and uh, but I, I sort of uh, got back together and uh, and and I did my final year exams and I, and I, I did okay and uh, I went on to uni and I did uh, I select I went into an arts degree and uh, selected all these. All these wonderful courses that looked absolutely fascinating and exciting. I'm sure they were. And I came home and told my mother and she said, look, could you at least pick one subject that when you, when you look at the paper on Saturday morning, because that's where the jobs are advertised in those days, there's a job for that thing. So, um, so I sort of grudgingly went back to uni and I was still a dutiful son there, clearly. And uh, so I dropped anthropology and I picked up psychology. So I went on and did honours in psychology and I majored in developmental psychology and I then went on straight out of my honours degree and started lecturing in, um, in um, uh, developmental psych and I really didn't enjoy lecturing so I, I tossed that in and, uh, and with nothing else to do I actually just was sort of wandering, wandering the place for a long time and spending a lot of time at the beach and then my m- money ran out. So I went back to the place where I quit and got a research assistant's job, and I loved research. I just loved it. I know I'd done a bit of it in my honours degree, but not as a job. And uh, and so uh, so I thought, well, I'll do that. I'll do my masters in in education, and I majored in educational psychology, and that really spoke to me because going back to myself as the mid adolescence. Everything I was learning in Ed Psych was explaining who I was back then and why I goofed off and why some teachers worked for me and other teachers didn't. And, uh, and so I loved that so much. I went out and did a PhD. And then from that, I, uh, I, I've managed to chase one research job after another. So I've managed to say research only all my life. But, uh, and sort of living on soft money most of that. But it's worked, it's worked out. And, uh, and so, uh, so here I am today looking at what switches on students and what switches them off. Back to where I was, I guess, as a Year 10 student. Has it always been motivation and engagement that you've been focusing on? Uh, it has, actually, um, and uh, predominantly. And so off that hangs a lot of spaghetti. And so it'll be, you know, motivation and engagement in relation to boys and girls or in relation to kids uh, at risk students or indi- indigenous kids in relation to gifted and talented more recently fo- looking at um, kids with ADHD and then from there you look at the teacher side of things what instructional practices are conducive to motivation engagement motivation engagement is always at the heart and I tell I tell young researchers sort of pick a home uh, pick a pillar 
uh, that you'd focus on as a researcher because from there, so much spaghetti will hang off it by the time you get to my stage of career. Perfect. Now, the paper you've nominated for us to have a look at today was about relating motivation and engagement to load reduction instruction. How was it that you came to look at that relationship? Yeah, so I guess picking up on the previous answer, um, for many years we were looking at students' motivation and engagement in isolation. So we'd look at their self-efficacy, their valuing of school, their goals, and it was all on the student side. And that explains a lot of variance in, in academic outcomes. At the end of the day, the main player in a student's life is the student him or herself. They will explain, and their attributes and so on will explain more variance in their outcomes than anything else. But at a certain point, we sort of hit the limits of how much one's self factors and processes could explain outcomes. And so at that point, we started looking at, well, who are the other main players? Are the main players are peers, parents, caregivers, but, but also teachers. And so because we conducted research in schools, teachers became uh, another focus of, of research. So then we were looking at instructional aspects and we were asked a few years ago to to do a review, a review for uh, John Hattie and Eric Anderman's um, handbook for in, Encyclopedia of International Student Achievement. And we were asked to review the chapter on, on direct instruction. And so uh, when I say we are myself and, and Greg Liam in Singapore, and in part of that, we, we reviewed various instructional approaches, some of which included explicit and direct instructional approaches as well. And we were juxtaposing the effect of achievement of, of, for example, explicit instruction effects on achievement with the effects of discovery-oriented approaches to achievement. And we found that um, in the first instance, it looked like most of the evidence for, in terms of achievement games was in favour of explicit instructional practices. However, when we looked closer and when we looked at what was going on in classrooms, and, and then I went on and did a little bit of further inquiry into that, it emerged, no surprises, that discovery and inquiry-oriented approaches can also be strongly related to achievement. But what we found was a barrier, and where it wasn't, was that when teachers were introducing those discovery, inquiry-based approaches too early in the learning process before students were sufficiently skilled or knowledgeable, and so they were uninformed and inexpert discoverers. Um, but when there was appropriate uh, explicit input in the early phases, followed by a bit of practice, a bit of feedback and teacher support, followed by more autonomous and guided discovery-oriented practices, that's when it, at each of those points they're all connected to, to, a, to achievement. So that's a bit of a long-winded story about moving from our motivation into the broad area of instruction and then looking at particular instructional approaches. Cool. You kind of touched on it there, but could you give us a little bit of a summary of what you see as the key things that you'd, you'd like a reader to take away from this article? Yes. Yeah, so, so load reduction instruction is, is all about um, recognising that students are at first novices uh, um, in most topics and, and most uh, activities and that, um, that a guided and structured uh, uh, approach to instruction in the early phases is critical to move the student to more of a developed or expert learner. It also, and so I developed load reduction instruction, which is represented by five core principles. The first is to reduce, and, and they're also a sequence. The first is to reduce the difficulty of instruction and instructional material in the initial stages of learning. The second part of LRI is, uh, is to provide appropriate support and scaffolding in these phases. 
The third is to provide sufficient practice to students to allow them to practice the skills and the knowledge that has been taught. The fourth is to provide appropriate feedback or ideally feed forward. So feedback tends to be a little more uh, corrective and, and static. Feed forward is taking that feedback but, but suggesting ways that students can improve in, in the next task and launching them into the next task. And the fifth is when the teacher, through the feedback and practice phase, when the teacher's satisfied the student has developed the knowledge and the skill that's required and automated that, so it's coming a little more freely and fluently, the teacher then moves the student to more of a discovery, open-ended, autonomous task that the student can, uh, can apply that, that more automated knowledge and skill in more um, open-ended and higher-order ways. And those five, five principles are the key pillars of load reduction instruction and are also designed to resolve or get at resolving what I see as the false dichotomy of explicit versus discovery approaches. They are in fact perfectly compatible and in fact they're inextricably linked because the success of one depends on the success of the other. You talked a little bit there, there about automation or as you move towards the end of those five steps, uh, you know, building automaticity into the process of, of students as they solve problems and as they learn. And you had one phrase in you talked about that a little bit in your paper, but then you had one phrase in particular which piqued my interest, and that was, you talked about um, automaticity, and then you said, accordingly, the aim of education is to increase the information held in long-term memory, and this is achieved through instructions that optimise the capacity of working memory and long-term memory to process new information efficiently. So, the key thing there was, the aim of education is to increase the information held in long-term memory. To what extent does uh, accepting load reduction instruction as a helpful kind of model hinge on the acceptance of an individual of that statement that that is the aim of education. Yeah, and and in fact that was a that was a an in, sort of an enlightening concept for me as I was reviewing the cognitive load theory research, the broader explicit or direct instruction research, and that is that a, a little bit of a an enlightenment, an epiphany for, for myself was that in fact. I am, I am, Andrew, uh, is the sum total of, of my long-term memory. And so everything I do, everything I, I think, all my responses come from what is stored in long-term memory. So how do I get out of bed? My long-term memory tells me I move my two feet to the side. How do I put toast in the toaster? Well, how do I even know that's a toaster? How do I even open the door handle to get out of my bedroom? Everything is stored in long-term memory that I need, that I need to survive and thrive. How do I know, to, A, to even look before I cross the road, or B, what's a car and a truck that might hit me, and B, what, you know, which direction do I turn my head? All of that, all of that resides in long-term memory. And to get through the day, I haul it, const I'm constantly hauling that information into working memory so I can so I can operate and function and respond appropriately in real time. So if we take that, that life itself in our very, you know, our very selves are, are the sum of our long-term memory, then within any domain that we must function, um, it follows as well. And so to the extent that we function academically or in the education domain, very much how we function and respond and behave and operate is, uh, is a function of the long-term memory we hold. So how do we even carry ourselves and conduct ourselves in a classroom in terms of behaviour? How do we know how to ask a question? 
why do we know to put our hand up or why do we know that when we don't put up our hand and ask a question, we're, we're, we're not following the rules? How do we know how to function in a test and so on? And all of that is about what's stored in long-term memory. So, that, so to the extent that that's the case, the task of educators is to deliver instruction and prepare instructional material in a way that can assist the storage of that material in long-term memory and give students sufficient practice and routine and repetition uh, so that they can automate the process of hauling that information from long-term memory into working memory and applying that. And the more students repeat and practice that, the faster the speed at which they, the more they burn it into long-term memory, but the faster they can access it in working memory when they're presented with a problem. Before, before I jump to the next question, I'm, we've started to use some, phrase, some terms like working memory and long-term memory. Uh, maybe it would be helpful for some listeners for us to have a bit more clarification around those two terms. So, long-term memory, so working memory is the, if we like, sort of the operating memory, where it's sort of the real-time stuff that's going right at the front of the head. So, uh, so working memory is noticing, the, you know, applying to the actual task at hand in the moment. Working memory is, uh, is essentially where we operate in real time and respond. But it has a very limited capacity. And so, you know, some will say between four and seven seconds or, you know, um, some, some, some up, till, up to 20 or so seconds, four, five, six or seven bits of information and, th- and then it's gone. And so those classic ideas about remembering a phone number. And so when they added that eighth digit, you know, a number of years ago for us, it caused a lot of problems. And so, uh, and so that's working memory. Long-term memory has no such limits. It has vast storage capacity and is constantly building up. So it doesn't make so so the the task of education is to build up long-term memory and develop strategies and 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 instruct in ways that we can help students working memory access long-term memory better and faster. And so, so a really, and so a good analogy, for example, is um, is just is one's desk. And so, on the desk surface is working memory. So we've got, you know, we can have a couple of papers on it, and a computer, and a phone, and and that's about it. We can't fit much more. So, how do we? Where do we put all that massive amount of information that's come, that's come into my working life in the last year or two years or three years? Well, I've got, a, I've got drawers and files underneath the desk. And so long-term memory, all those drawers and filing cabinets and working memory is the desk space. Another is a computer. So the hard drive is like the long-term memory. We can, you know, we now, we now have gigabytes and terabytes that we can shove into this, into this hard drive. But the RAM is the very more limited operating space. And unless we've got a lot of RAM, we can only have one program open at a time and so on. And so that's another good example of working versus long-term memory. And so the teacher's task is to, to deliver material that helps represent uh, long-term memory in, in organised ways. Why is it good to be org- well-organised in long-term memory? Because that's how our working memory can find that information quickly. And so keep working memory nice and fresh as it's responding to problems. So a good example is if we see our all we see a house as representing all the information we're taught at school and in one room is maths in another room's english and another room's history and so in the maths room there's there's a number of cupboards and so one cupboard might be sort of 
uh, number processes. Another one might be algebra. Another one might be measurement. Inside the uh, the measurement cupboard will be uh, one filing cabinet for area, one for volume, and so on. Inside the measurement will be um, uh, the will be inside the area uh, filing cabinet will be the area of triangles, the area of squares, and so on. And so, um, and then there'll be specific files for you know you know different types of you know, four sided things and so on. And uh, and so, kids that are quick at answering measurement questions know exactly where the maths room is, know exactly where the measurement cupboard is, knows exactly where the area filing cabinet is, and knows exactly where the square file is. And so. How how do the and whereas other kids don't even know where the maths room is or don't have got the ma- the measurement and the algebra um, cupboards jumbled, why is that? Well, one of the reasons, and there's a number of reasons, but one of them is the way teachers deliver instructional material, and so teachers that deliver instructional material in nicely organised thematic ways, in linear ways, and ways that make it clear what's what and what's not what and so on, and then allow some practice of that. They actually, students will represent that, that information in similar ways in their long-term memory. And so by delivering instruction in nicely organised, structured, linear ways, you're actually allowing long-term memory to be re- represented quite, quite efficiently. And so students are able to find that information quickly and apply it in their working memory uh, appropriately. So that's an example of working memory, long-term memory, the importance of long-term memory being nicely organised and the working memory yields of being able to access that, that organised information. You have kind of touched on it, but I think, I'm, I imagine there are still some listeners who are kind of screaming out in, in protest because they've got this, this concept in their head, which is a little voice in their head, which is saying, yeah, but what about Google? Right? You have covered it already, but I just wanted to give an opportunity to explicitly respond to that question or that, that assertion that, now that we've got Google, you know, surely that's changed everything because now students have all the information at their fingertips. Yeah, and so, so I, think, I think there are some. So, for example, let's go back to the measurement question and the area question. And so, one thing that that relies on is for it to be a purely measurement uh, or area lesson or task, it relies on the assumption that a student knows their times tables pretty well. So you times one side by the other to get the area of the square. And so that's a skill, if you like, that um, will take you a while to find on Google. And so if, for example, it's a measurement lesson and we're scrambling it with trying to find information on Google, then we've increased the burden on the cognitive load on the student because it's now not just a measurement question, it's actually a, a measurement and internet research question. And, uh, and I'll talk about internet research as well, which is which is a, a, a cognitive load minefield. But, um, and so, so what we need to do, the advantage, for example, of having, having practice times tables and automated that means that when you're asked what's the area of a square, it's a pure area question. It's not actually a question that's also you know, um, loaded with having to count you know, 4 plus 4 plus 4 plus 4 to get the area of, of a sort of a 4 by 4 square. So what I would say is there's a lot of things that, that sort of stitch in Time Saves 9. There's a lot of things that we can learn, we can automate, we can have in long-term memory 
which means we can cut to the chase on a, on, 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 a, on a measurement task, on an algebra task, without having to introduce other cognitive burdens such as A, um, trying to add up four sides, or B, jumping on Google and trying to find out actually how to do that. And so, uh, so that would be an, ex- a, 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 an argument against over-relying on Google. I'll also say, though, that I've recently, this idea of internet research, we're finding big differences between novices and experts among students in that. So I've made the argument that students may be digital natives when it comes to social networking and gaming and things like that, or getting around their iPads so their parents can't find you know, the file folders and files they've got. And so they may be expert at that. But when it comes to, the, to academic application for, ac- for school-type tasks, we actually find they're not digital natives at all. They're digital novices. And so, uh, and so increasingly, I'm talking about bringing LRI, for example, to even teaching them how to use Dr. Google. And, uh, and so, for example, spending good time on explicit instruction around develop- generating a good search term, around when you've got a good search term, how do you locate a good a good uh, you know, handful of URLs. When you've found some good URLs, how do you locate information in that URL that's task-relevant? When you've found that task-relevant information on that URL, how do you transfer and apply it to this essay you now have to do? And when you think about it, the cognitive load from go to woe is enormous. And so I even talk about LRI being a very important strategy for an academic task that arguably presents the potential for more cognitive load than anything else a student may need to do. And by that, I mean searching the internet. Andrew, good evening, Dominic Hearn. Um, You spoke earlier on about scaffolding. And I'll start with that first question. Um, Scaffolding by whom? Teacher or student or both? I think, again, getting back to that novice and expert idea, I think initially the scaffolding is, it comes from the teacher. And so, uh, because the teacher is the expert at, at the outset, and so they know the knowledge that's needed, they know the knowledge from start to finish, they know the skills that, that are needed, and they know the end point. So, getting back to load reduction instruction, they know the open-ended inquiry-based higher-order task at the end of all this explicit input. And so them, them knowing that, they'll know how to A, structure things in the early phases of learning, and B, scaffold students to that point of uh, discovery and inquiry-based uh, learning. I think it's also, and then um, not only is instruction scaffolded, but the tasks themselves are scaffolded. So, for example, the cognitive load theorists talk about the importance of First of all, presenting worked examples so a student can see exactly what's required. And then presenting, for example, partially worked examples where the student will complete, uh, you know, the other half of the task. And so even tasks themselves can have inbuilt scaffolds. But I think there comes a point also, I think ideally what we'd like with our learners is, um, is to learn how to scaffold themselves as well. And so, for example... Uh, in that, uh, in the the monograph, uh, the paper we're talking about, there's also the talk about goal setting. And for example, um, a lot of our research looks at students' personal best goal setting. And so, where we ask a student, for example, to compete with him or herself rather than compete with others, but map out the steps involved in getting to that uh, getting to that uh, goal, 
chunking is another um, an, another uh, a strategy that's talked about in the paper, and that's where students are taught how to break tasks down into bite-sized, doable bits, and uh, and so that also eases the, the the cognitive burden as they work through the task. And also, in the paper, was about motivation. Also, what we find is as students complete each little bit, they actually build self-efficacy through the task, uh, and so we can see that students. Establishing their own inbuilt scaffolds is not only a nice way to actually work through a task and break it down to doable bits, but also gain efficacy through the task as they do it. You mentioned quite a number of things in that answer which were really very useful, and it's flagging um, material that's being brought back from professional development in schools at the moment. So... The idea of um, presenting worked examples runs counter to everything that assessment task set up, and I can't speak this for primary, but for secondary, where we're asked to give a general, the specific topic, and then the scaffold, which is the marking scaffold. Um, what we're finding is that male students are less likely to understand the implications of the marking scaffold in terms of then producing a complex, really higher order answer. I, I'm, it's been nearly 20 years since I've taught girls, so I'm not sure whether this holds true for girls as well. But certainly to, rather than present the marking scaffold, actually to present worked examples of um, previous work which has gained this sort of mark, this rank of mark, this rank of mark, is actually going to have more effect with boys. So that was interesting, uh, but that's going to require a major mind shift in the way teachers and schools present assessment tasks for students. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure the, the worked, ex, worked examples and, the, and the, uh, the, the marking grids and so on are, are, are mutually exclusive but, 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 or, or in direct competition. I see they can be. One thing I've found helpful and is some of the HSC subjects, so this is New South Wales, Australia, HSC is the, fi the final exam in year 12 that students will do. And the Board of Studies, now, now NISA, they, they put up answers that got a band one and two, answers got band three and four. And, um, and so their, their worked example, here's a worked example of a, of a, of a, of a poor answer. And, uh, and so uh, I find that very illuminating because, um, because they're sort of, uh, they're, they're, they're sort of tethered it's a way of tethering the worked example to, you know, that's the worked example, but and how does this translate in terms of a marker and then putting it against the rubric? And so I find uh, the integration of those two uh, can be quite helpful. Having said that, in some ways you might even present that at the start, at the start of a unit, but then you'd have to go back to the start and, and, and really um, explicitly instruct how the students co to construct that. I guess I'm, I'm nervous about, you know, I'm, I'm nervous about sort of explicit instructional approaches being 
applied mindlessly to, to marking rubric. And I think the marking rubrics can, and can actually be you know, repackaged without losing any of their substance, but repackaged in more in terms of sort of learning, learning goals. Uh, and, uh, and, and I think to the extent that that's the case, there can be some resolution in the two, the two things you're talking about. But and in that being the case, the focus is on is on the learning rather than the rather than you know the the sort of the the testing and the and the high stakes aspects of it all. Uh, so Kathleen here, uh, from a primary perspective, one of my favourite teaching activities that I've seen other teachers use is called a bump it up wall, and it's exactly that. You have the four samples usually of work. Uh, in response to whatever the prompt or activity or question is up on the wall. And you start with that as an example, and then you do the explicit instruction. So this is how I've been told to implement it, and I haven't actually implemented it myself, but I'm desperate to. And then the beauty of it is over time, as students become more competent and more confident, you get them to take their work to the wall and look at their work against the sample. and figure out how they can bump it up and uh, they can annotate the examples as a class as part of that to look at, okay, why is this sample of a higher standard than the sample before it? So, that they're doing, it's mixed with ongoing explicit instruction around things like grammar and punctuation and syntax and all the things that we're concerned with in primary school. <laughs> but it's just, it's a really, I like the idea of empowering learners to actually look at how they can improve their own work to go to the next level. And from another perspective that I bring, which is I'm managing a knowledge management project at the moment. And one of the key things in knowledge management is to give worked examples. If you want people to fill in a budget form the correct way, we give them examples of three different types that they might encounter. And this is what it looks like when you fill it in. So they still have to do the thinking for their own, but they know what they're doing then. So, from a professional context, in an adult world, that's what people need to do in the workplace. So, it makes a lot of sense that that's the way you do it in a school. Yeah, starting from the, your last point, point first, uh, that's right. When, a, when I have a doctoral student come in, um, I let them see what a PhD looks like. And then, um, now, that doesn't mean they're, just, they're going to be able to do it from then on. Then, then they have to be scaffolded right through to year three and year four. And then, but the first part, I then show them what a PhD proposal looks like because that's the first year, that's the task for the first year. So, so many students at school, you know, get to year 12 and still don't know what a, what a good essay really looks like. Um, and, uh, and so, take the mystery out of what good work is. And so, uh, so you know, teachers can actually assign, uh, you know, here's a good essay from last year. Have a, take it home, have a read of it, and let's have a talk about why that was the case. Then you go back to back, you know, to grassroots within the load reduction instruction process. But um, it's quite appropriate, even though uh, the first stage of LRI is to reduce the difficulty of task in the initial stage of learning. I believe that um, you know that 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 can also involve showcasing what good work looks like, where we're all headed as a group. And uh, and so and also and also I will say arousing curiosity in the first instance. So sometimes you can begin with an open-ended, discovery-oriented question that is a cue that is a cue for 
the start of the start of the topic and you'll say we're going to get to this answer but for the moment we're going to sort of live with the dissonance and the discomfort of not knowing what it is and when I was a kid, I'm showing my age here, but when I was a kid, there was shows famous for that. The Curiosity Show was famous for that in, in, a, in, in creating dissonance, um, Julius Sumner Miller, creating dis- dissonance at the start that, you know, you were really interested in quickly cycling through all four channels that were available on television back then to get to Get Smart or Batman. You'd, you'd, get, you'd, you'd momentarily, you know, land on the Curiosity Show. They'd pitch a question that was so intriguing. Uh, that it'd get you in. And, uh, and, so, and then from there, they would engage in very, very clear and engaging instructional practices. So, so in some ways, even, um, even at, the, at the outset of load reduction instruction, I believe we can start with those, either showcasing complete examples of, of good work, identifying where we're headed and what it looks like, or even o- opening up a discovery-oriented question to say, this is where we're going. The bump it up um, exercise is another version of that where it showcases good work, but it integrates that with this personal best goal setting uh, approach where uh, we found in our research that competing with yourself has far more motivating yields than competing with other kids. So we so this personal best research program, and so you're getting a nice, uh, a nice, and the other thing is there's an inbuilt scaffold there, but it's, a, it's, it's what I would say is a personally accessible scaffold. I may never be able to beat some kids in a classroom, but I can always invest a little bit more effort or do things a little bit better than I did it before. And so this bump it up where it's cast against your own work, encouraging a personal progress uh, goal is, again, an inbuilt scaffold, which is part two, the second principle of load reduction instruction. Something that comes out quite strongly in your paper is We've been talking a lot about working examples, but it's how when people are novices in a field, worked examples are really helpful. But as they progress from novice to expert, things like worked examples become less helpful and we move more into guided instruction that becomes more helpful. People often associate with, uh, you know, cognitive load theory or, or load reduction, explicit instruction. And I'm wondering how, if and how you've seen a teacher cater to both uh, novices and experts at the same time in the same classroom being aware of these issues? I'm just making a note of that so I don't forget both questions or both points. The first point I want to make is, yeah, um, maybe a better term for load reduction instruction is load management instruction, and that is where you, this teacher manages the cognitive load on students. Sometimes it's not always about reducing it. And so, for example, you touched on the fact that when you move from um, novice to expert, you change the mix of explicit instruction and discovery and so on. And in fact, in cognitive load theory, that's borne out by things like the expertise reversal effect. And that is what they find is it's really helpful for a learner in the initial stages of learning for explicit, structured, heavily scaffolded um, instruction and repetition and some drill to really burn it in long-term memory and automate it. But when the, when, the, when the students got it, don't keep doing that because we find that once it becomes a reversal, the boredom, the, the monotony starts undoing some of the gains you've made. And so there's this expertise reversal effect. And that's the point, again, where I'd say that's where you either move on to new material or ideally, actually, you don't you actually move into a higher-order discovery-oriented phase. 
I always say um, about load reduction instruction is once you've burnt something in long-term memory and you've um, automated it so that working memory's freed up, don't waste the, fruit, the liberated working memory. Use that as the opportunity now to engage in higher-order discovery-oriented. If you then, once you say, oh, you've got in long-term memory, kids, great, now let's now drill and, and get repetition on the next concept. I would say, well, hang on, that's the point you should have moved to the fifth principle in load reduction instruction. Don't waste the working memory you've now freed up because it can be applied for quite creative, quite expressive, quite generative solutions and, and activities. So, so that's the first point about novice and expert and about it being actually about managing the cognitive load a little more than reducing cognitive load. Catering to novice versus expert. In, in, also in that paper, I talk about uh, what's called the I do, we do, you do uh, approach to instruction. I didn't invent that. That's been, that's been um, articulated before. I have, however, ex built on it to, to link with load reduction instruction. So the I do phase is that sort of classic, right, guys, all eyes on me. That, that is being the teacher. I've got something to say. Okay, I've got some content to deliver. I've got, I'm going to show you how to do something. And that's the I do phase, the I being teacher. The we do phase is where the teachers develop some, some, some quick tasks, maybe a quick worksheet and, uh, or some Q&A that, that, uh, for, for, that particular, uh, for that particular topic. And the we do phase is where the teacher's seeing whether the kids have understood or got what, what the teacher's uh, either shown or communicated. That will go to and fro. Q&A, no, they haven't quite got it. All right, back to me, guys. Um, and then when, when, the when about 80% of kids have got that, or 70% of kids in the class have got that, that's when um, they move to what's called the you-do phase. And the teacher has designed an open-ended discovery or inquiry type activity where the kids stretch their wings. The teacher knows they've solidified and consolidated the information and skill in long-term memory. And from here, everything's a bonus. And so that's, that's when they move the about 20% of kids move to the you-do phase, an autonomous, independent activity. There will always be a 20% of kids, or not always, but it's likely there'll always be a bunch of kids in a class who haven't quite got it. Now, the teacher can't hold the whole class back until every kid in the class has got it. So at the you-do phase, where about 80% of the kids are working a little more independently, the teacher uses that opportunity to then work in individually with kids who might not have quite got it. Uh, and so that's the individualized instruction component for kids that do need more individualized instruction than ever. And so a lesson and series of lessons is this cycling through the I do, we do, you do phase as new material and new activities are brought into the classroom. And, uh, and so students are released to the you do phase as needed and other students sort of stay in the I and we do phase as needed. Um, and so that's the process of how in the one class, and the other thing is teachers can use small group work quite effectively. And so, for example, um, there might be a group of learners that get it pretty quickly and that they can move through that, that phase, the LRI phases quite quickly and, and spend uh, a little more time um, on, more, and on more complex material uh, and more open-ended uh, and inquiry-based material. And so you can actually use small groups within the class to also manage the novice to expert uh, status that will exist in every classroom. As we're identifying novices and experts in our classroom, are we actually talking about 
anything other than what teachers are already doing in terms of working out who can and who can't do the the, the, the procedure or the approach? Yeah, there's, I think there's a few ways to, to think about novice versus expert or novice versus developed learner. Um, the first, um, if you think about the first principle of load reduction instruction is to reduce the difficulty uh, in the initial stages of learning. To do that effectively, teachers will have to do some pre-testing and some pre-assessment to know where are these kids and who's where and what do they know, what don't they know. Teachers coming in without really having a sense of where the students are at or who's at where um, really can't deliver instruction in a differentiated um, or even get the first first uh, principle of load reduction instruction done done correctly. And so that pre-testing is one way to start sorting out who doesn't, doesn't know things. Um, and then there'll be a difference in the rate at which students move from novice through to expert status. And so some students will move. Um, so it, it is said that the difference between, for example, um, high ability kids or what we might call gifted and talented um, isn't isn't um, isn't so much because you know isn't because there's, there's you know so much you know uh, um, because they're sort of completely different sorts of students. They're actually um, uh, it's actually in their capacity to to uh, to store information long term memory, um, their capacity to organise that information in a way that can be uh, accessed very quickly. Um, and the speed at which they're able to automate and make fluent the the um, the communication between working memory and long term memory, and so um, some kids are able to uh, to do that that those little processes quickly, and others take a few more repetitions and practice. And so um, even if kids start at the same novice status, they'll move through to expert status differently because different kids have different. Um, uh, um, different uh, speed at which they can access long-term memory, and also there'd be individual differences in actual working memory functions. So, for example, kids with ADHD, um, they have executive function disorder. One of one of one of the functions that ADHD hits is something is are things like working memory, and so um, and so they will need a little more structure. Uh, more drill, more practice, um, and 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 some repetition and uh, and and greater scaffolding to uh, to um, to recognise the working memory, uh, the organic working memory deficits they they experience. So so I, so in answer to your question, how do you determine novice versus expert and so on? And uh, it's it's a multi-dimensional consideration, um, knowing that different kids have different um, rates at which they can build up long-term mem memory. Some kids are able to organise that better, uh, and uh, and there also be some students where particular functions are are affected in in disproportionate ways. The way we've been talking about novices and experts so far is kind of like in relation to one particular skill, and you can move a student in relation to that skill, dividing fractions or whatever, from novice to expert. Is it possible that a student could just be like in a generalised sense an expert learner? I would imagine what that would look like is they're, they're able to identify where they are um, from novice to expert on any particular skill and to autonomously manage the level of cognitive load that they're, they're being, being placed under. Is that a thing that exists? Look, I think, I think it, it, it exists um, in, a, in a broad way. And so, for example, there are some students who... Um, illiterate, and so they're pretty good at 
moving from novice to expert in in their grammar, their punctuation, like you were talking about earlier, and uh, and they're pretty good at at putting sentences together, uh, and they're pretty good at knowing how to order ideas in a way that you know it makes a sensible argument. And, uh, and they're pretty good at sort of balancing those ideas in the last paragraph to, to make some sort of balanced conclusion that won't get them into too much trouble with any examiner. And so there are students that are strong on those sorts of skills. But after that, we would argue that domain specificity takes over. And so the sorts of framing and narrative and words and argumentation that would go on in a history essay would be different from a business studies or a psychology or an English essay. And so at a certain point, some domain-specific spe- expertise would need to be developed to move from that sort of, look, I've sort of got 50% of this, this subject nailed with regards to my general capa- expertise in in stringing together sentences and words and and so on, and accessing the right word and having a nice big word bank in the long-term memory. But then at a certain point, you will have to dive into history to add new words to the word bank, um, new ways to apply those words, new knowledge about um, the sort of uh, the the philosophy behind um, historical analysis and argumentation. And you can only do that by by sitting in that history lesson, being taught by a history teacher, and uh, your expertise developed along those lines. So I guess you sort of you certainly hit the ground running, but even even then you would need to dive into specific domains to um, and to uh, t- from a load reduction instruction perspective to get the most to really develop yourself as a learner in that subject. And to extend my earlier example of a load reduction instruction approach teaching kids how to use the internet for academic school related research purposes i even argue that you need to you don't just have a and, and schools will have right all kids go to the library to learn how to use search terms to find urls that's that's in most schools i argue that it's actually domain specific how do you generate search terms in this subject how do you know what a good you know what? What's a trustworthy site for this particular subject matter? And I, and again, I would even argue the load reduction instruction approach to teaching kids how to use the internet would need to happen in every subject to really, yes, they have a general idea, but to develop that expertise for that subject. I'm just thinking, for example, if a learner is aware of kind of the process of load reduction instruction, if they know that in any domain when they're starting out a key thing to do is to find a worked example. Is it possible that that would be able to empower them to be more of an expert learner uh, in and of itself? For example, if they had written great songs in the past and they'd known that they'd done that by finding a few songs they liked, kind of breaking them down, seeing usually it starts with a verse and it's got a chorus, it's got another verse, another chorus, etc. And then they come to, come to class, I've never written a history essay before, and the teacher says, write a history essay. That student could go, okay, I know for me, and for most learners, the first thing I need to do is find a perfect example of a history essay, break it down, and go from there. Is that something that's possible? 
Yeah, I think it is. And so I think um, thus far we've been talking about load reduction instruction, in particular content domains in silos. Um, and uh, but I think you know overarching that is 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 LRI in relation to the process itself. Um, and so I think, and a lot of those processes do generalise to particular subjects. Um, and so, uh, so I think without question, can I? Oh, what? I, but if I could use that opportunity to move into um, into another sort of um, educational um, uh, area, and that is the issue of uh, of um, cross curricular um, uh, application of things. And so, you know, again, there's been another sort of a tussle between those that say, look, you really need to learn maths in maths, whereas others say, oh, you know, we, we, we'll embed maths across the curriculum and you'll learn. And um, it, it tends to happen a little more in the primary schools than the high schools. High schools, you know, do silos very well. Um, and, uh, and so, um, which has its ups and downsides. Um, but, uh, and so, I guess my answer to that is that I, I, I see the cross-curricular application as being probably in uh, that sort of stage five of load reduction instruction. That's where you sort of apply what you know in two domains that you've spent good time in each of them. And, you, and, and, um, and when you've got good knowledge and skill in each of them that were taught within each of those silos, then actually a further, uh, the third uh, part of that would be um, load reduction instruction in, in actually applying skills across domains. And so, um, and so that's a little bit of an example, another, an, an adaptation or extension of what you're saying, where um, I do believe in cross-curricular uh, application, but I, I, my feeling um, is that uh, it begins with domain-specific expertise, where you, you know, you're taught these, uh, these sort of concepts in one subject and you're taught domain-specific co concepts and skills in another, and then um, a third, uh, a third, um, uh, a third uh, topic would be how you would apply both those, uh, integrate them to to apply to to to, to something else, and so that would be um, uh, sort of an adaptation or extension of, of what you've been saying. Again, um, breaking the difficulty of down. Again, I think trying to apply things across the curriculum too early increases cognitive load. Um, and uh, and if you haven't developed the, the the requisite skill and knowledge of that particular domain, then your application elsewhere um, um, almost um, necessarily will be patchy. To me, your question was getting at something else. Sorry, Kat. Yeah. To me, Ollie's question was getting at something else. If we're talking about sharing instructional strategies with our students which we should be, I don't believe in secret teacher business at all, isn't that our job? Shouldn't we be empowering our students to learn how to learn? Because if we do nothing else, giving them those strategies is exactly what we're here for. So, I mean, I would just go, <laughs> you gave a good answer as well, but I would just say yes. Of course we should share the strategies. Of course we should encourage them and empower them to apply those strategies when they do encounter new information and go, well, okay, it's a history essay and I've been learning in music, but I know the process because I've been using all my metacognitive strategies of thinking about thinking. So, I know what the rough process will be of how I can approach this. That's much more empowering than sitting there going, I don't know what's going on. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. And, uh, and so, 
but even teaching students self-regulation, I would bring a, a load reduction instruction lens to that. And so, so the first, you know, and, and even within self-regulation, you know, how do I regulate, you know, how do I organise myself for, for homework tonight? And so again, um, again, the LRI five principles can can work towards that. And ultimately, you you're you know, the 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 final one is where you're an independent sort of homework doer. Or um, and uh, and so, uh, but in the early stages, you know, kids don't know the basic self management techniques and don't know how to or what to do first or when to do it and how to prioritize. And so, I would absolutely agree that that our job is to is to teach these. Um, these uh, these uh, metacognitive skills, and but broad, more broadly, even social skills and so on. Um, and uh, you know, um, you know, I talk, uh, I, I, you know, I talk to some adolescents, you know, who who, you know, so, um, some a conversation with some um, adolescent uh, boys uh, not long ago about you know talk, talking to girls, and they're like, oh, how do you? How do you? So so what they do is they they see they see you know. You know, old older guys. You know, having these extended conversations, and oh, how can you have a long conversation with a girl? And I say, well, the first first time you see them is just say hello, just just say hello, and they'll say hello back. Then the next time, hello, how you going? And then next, and so you just, and then after that, you know, and usually usually they'll they'll ask you something back, and uh, and then after then then you move, you know, the next time you see them, how how's you going? How's your week been? Or you know what you know. Did you do an exam this week, or what sport are you doing? And so you just you just build up. You know, you're not going to launch into deep esoteric, you know, uh, you know, meaningful discussions. Some will, but they're the experts. Um, but most of us are sort of novices that need to work towards that. And so, so in I, I cannot think of anything where those five principles, um, and we've been focusing on subject matter, but I. And formal lessons, but I cannot think of anything with those five principles are not uh, are not critical. Yeah, and I take what you're saying. I guess I just looked at it as self evident yeah. that you'd you'd say to your students, "This is how we're going to approach our learning experience," and and this is why. Okay, I'm not going to use the words load reduction instruction with primary school students. I'll give it a fancier name than that. That's <laughs> easier for them to relate to. And I'm not going to use all of the same language. But if you don't understand how the learning process is unfolding, I, I guess I reflect on myself and my mentor sitting next to me. And she knows that I didn't know how to learn until my mid-20s. It's not a skill that I picked up at school. And now that I do understand how to learn, I look at it and go, why didn't I learn how to learn in school? Well, I know, um, and uh, one of the ideas that, that Ollie shot me in preparation for this was, you know, was there a teacher that, that made a big difference? And, and I think I can safely say, I don't think it was till year 12 that I excelled at anything. Um, and, uh, and it was my ancient history teacher who just got us to practice essays, um, just learn, learn the structure uh, and uh, got us to then stretch our wings and apply it to new questions and we did it again and again. And, um, and through that process, I, for the first time or one of the few times in my school life, I, I, I did really well at something. And uh, and um, looking back, I can and and at the same time, he he was an engaging teacher and presented material in engaging ways. So so there was no again there was uh, you know 
this this sort of load reduction instruction and engagement are not mutually exclusive. In fact, that's the point of the whole paper that we're talking about. They're, they're in fact, not only complementary but mutually enhancing. But uh, but yeah, so that was and 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 I, I literally it was the first time I'd ever you know or one of the very few times I'd excelled at something at school and all the other subjects I didn't excel. But but on this where he he actually lived to this principle or these five principles and um, and yeah it, it, I know it's it's it, I guess it's self evident and and Ollie may touch on some of the myths wrapped up in all this a little later but but one of those one of the myths is uh there's a number of them but one of them is that um oh when i present lri to teachers oh yeah that's what i do i do all that all the time and um and then when i go into lessons i think the danger of it being self-evident is that you think you do it and 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 so um, I go in, I see, wow, you've jumped right in the middle of something. I can see half the kids, are, their heads are spinning or, um, or they've got it and you're still banging it, giving them more practice. Move on, just let them stretch their wings. And so, yeah, and, uh, and, so, and I'll just talk about t- t- teachers. I think us as humans think we live self-evident things when actually we don't. Just, just finally on this learning to learn thing, I kind of have – I teach year, year 11 and 12 and I, I dream of one, one day students, perhaps for my class, if, if I start to emphasize this stuff more, maybe they're in their chemistry class, the biology class or something, and they say to their teacher, I'm sorry, sir, I, you know, I'm still in the novice phase. I think I need a worked example right now. You know, I'm experiencing strenuous cognitive load. Um, <laughs> maybe, you know, perhaps we could actually get students to that level of metacognition and understanding of the learning processes that are underpinning their learning and maybe that would be really empowering. I hadn't actually thought, and 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 uh, Kathleen touched on it as well. I hadn't actually thought about this making load reduction instruction principles explicit to students. Um, again, because I've been thinking about you know getting teachers to do it, and uh, and um, absolutely, I could see it's a it's um it gives um it gives students a a rationale for why lessons are sequenced in the way they do, materials presented in the way that it is. But also, when you hit new territory and there's no teacher there or whatever, you've got these you've got these principles that you can that you can cast against to to consider how you're travelling. Teacher proofing the students. Teacher proofing <laughs> the students. Yeah, no no secret teacher business. That, K- Kathleen's put it well. Um, I did have one question in relation, another question in relation to this, and this is this is in relation to how PhDs are run in Australia versus other countries like the US. My understanding is in Australia, there's very few PhD programs that actually include coursework. Usually, it's just kind of work out a question, do your confirmation, off you go. Um, sounds like your candidates get a little bit more support than that. Um, but my understanding is also in the States, they often have a lot of coursework. So, what does that tell us about how maybe the States versus Australia is categorizing PhD candidates along the spectrum uh, from novice to expert? And where do you think the average PhD candidate is, is, is within that? Yeah, look, I think, I, th- I think we make a lot of assumptions um, in terms of, uh, oh, they've got first-class honours and the university medal and so on. I'm, I'm still astounded at, at again, um, having to go back to basics on, on, on teaching, you know, it's instructing doctoral students how to 
find good search terms and 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 what's what's good research and what's not and all that on the internet and uh, and so we make the assumption that they are but um, but that's not the case. I think the um, <clears throat> I think also there's a uh, um, again getting back to that um, at a certain I think the doctoral students come in as with with some with with general skills but the PhD requires you to dive very deep long and deep and so a good example is students coming to me they'll have general statistical skills but in my particular area they need to know for example structural equation modeling and so um, and so they will so the domain specific expertise needs to be developed so they'll well send them off to an SEM course and uh, and that instructor will will go the good ones and they do uh, they go through the LRI principles knowingly or unknowingly so they'll start you know what's a correlation and then what's a you know a linear regression now what's multiple regression and now we can start going to structure the equation model in the end of the course the aim they ask students to bring their own data with them and now get you know now dive into your own data and explore it using structural equation modeling so these classic classic models so so I think um I think we should actually consider doctoral students coming in as novices for the task that's ahead of them, and uh, some will move from novice to expert much faster, but, uh, but none of them will be able to do without some explicit and early uh, uh, instruction along the LRI lines. We might try to link things through the motivation and engagement a little bit now. Um, the, f- the first part of the paper was dedicated to defining kind of th- following the LRI approach, uh, defining some LRI instructional principles, then talking about the uh, motivation engagement wheel. And the third part was bringing them together. And I know you've done some subsequent research that's actually collected some data in relation to this. So, what were your goals? What did you expect to find? And what have you find in t- found in terms of the relationships between LRI and motivation engagement? Yeah, so, so back to where we began with the conversation. As a, as a motivation researcher, we were looking at the self-processes. Then we cast around for you know the instructional side of things, and and then look to develop a framework that 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 connected both the explicit and the discovery oriented approaches. And so this paper, and then from there, um, we uh, we inferred that, for example, you know the scaffolding, the chunking exercise that I talked about earlier. Well, if scaffolding, if chunking is a scaffolding activity, that's um, a step. Uh, step two of the LRI principles, then um, we know that chunking on another channel of research builds self-efficacy through a task. So, you know, by implication, you know, load reduction instruction approaches should also be connected to motivation uh, outcomes. And those those two worlds hadn't really been connected. And so this paper was very much about hauling both worlds together and, and exploring the connections between them. But the paper really ended, you know, uh, it, with the, the, the urgent need for, for, for empirical research to collect data on both sides. And to some extent, the cognitive load people have been doing that, but it, it, it tends to be a little more of a unidimensional motivation approach. So, you know, they'll, they might look at self-efficacy alone or they might look at anxiety alone. Motivation researchers typically take a much more multi-dimensional approach to motivation, seeing it in terms of adaptive and maladaptive dimensions, seeing it in terms of motivation and engagement, and then um, and then um, disaggregating it in terms of you know, self-efficacy, valuing, mastery, anxiety, persistence, self-regulation, and so 
the question was how do elements of LRI map against all those different dimensions of motivation engagement and that's the empirical question. Recently, myself and Paul Evans are uh, here in the School of Ed. Um, we've, uh, we've, we, we developed the low reduction instruction scale, the LRIS, and, um, and what that does is it administers items that, to students that assess each of the five principles of LRI. And so there's five items that ask about the extent to which their teacher reduces the difficulty of a task in the initial phase of learning. There's five items around asking how much support and scaffolding teachers provide. There's five items about how much feedback and feed forward teachers provide. There's five items asking how much practice teachers provide. And there's five items asking how much teachers allow students to move on to more autonomous and independent learning once they've got, we've got, they've got the skill and knowledge under their belt. So there's, it's a 25-item instrument. In the same instrumentation, uh, and we, we administer that to just under 400 school students. And uh, in years, just trying to think, in years seven, eight, and nine, was it? I can't recall. Okay. Um, nine, 10, and 11. And so uh, in the same instrument, we administer the motivation engagement scale, which is, assesses multidimensional motivation engagement. In the same instrument, we also administered a, uh, uh, an achievement test in maths and literacy. And also, we uh, administered classic measures of cognitive load, extraneous load, and intrinsic load. And what we, uh, what we found, and we haven't published this, we're just sort of finalising this paper, but what we found uh, in support of the, the, the paper that's the focus of this session was that, in fact, the five elements of load reduction instruction significantly and positively connected to different positive dimensions of uh, students' motivation and engagement and negatively, we're negatively associated with maladaptive dimensions of motivation engagement such as anxiety, fear of failure, self-handicapping and disengagement. And so the more teachers were engaged in load reduction instruction, the higher student self-efficacy, valuing a school, mastery orientation, persistence, planning and task management. The more teachers were engaged in load reduction instruction, the lower students were anxiety, fear of failure, uncertain control, self-handicapping and disengagement was. We also found that load reduction instruction was significantly and positively connected to students' achievement. And we also uh, found that in terms of the classic cognitive load measures of intrinsic and extraneous load, our LRIS was also significantly connected to that. So. So what's, we're, we're getting proof of concept here. Uh, and, so, uh, and so this initial research is confirming the core ideas in these. Well, first of all, it, 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 it uh, showed the validity and reliability of a newly developed instrument, the LRIS. And secondly, it, it showed that the concepts that it's tapping into are significantly associated with students' academic development. You sent, you sent me through a bit of a... Uh, summary of some of your findings today, and I had a bit of a look at them. A question I had was, when you were doing this research, did you look at it at the student by student level, or did you look at it at the teacher level? For example, did you say, on average, this, this teacher was rated by their students as applying the LRI principles, or was it at the student level? Yeah, thanks. Excellent question. So, so um, it was actually um, a multi-level study, and so we were able to test these at the individual student level. But we also tested it at the classroom level and we found that there was significant variation in teachers' use 
of load reduction instruction from class to class. Uh, and so what that means is that different teachers are using it or not using it, and also that the effects of using it or not using it had significant consequences for students' academic development. Fantastic. That was my question, because if we were only looking at the student level, it could be that the student's interpretation of the instruction is LRI because they're a high-achieving student. So, like, yeah, this teacher gives us enough practice. Yeah, the teacher explains it clearly. And yes, I have a high level of self-efficacy, but that could be, you know, there could be that confounding variable behind that, which is that they're just a high-achieving student. So, that's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. So, there was in, yeah, what was interesting, yes, is there's class variation in the extent to which teachers will use load reduction instruction. We sort of get back to an earlier point about one of the myths uh, that is, oh, yes, yeah, I use that. Um, uh, almost every teacher I've spoken to says, oh, yes, I use that. And in fact, um, when, you, when you scratch the surface, that's not the case. There was something that you mentioned in your paper, and that was the work of Kapoor. And Kapoor talks about productive failure. So, this is kind of looking at a, a different area now. My understanding is productive failure is essentially the opposite of LRI. It gives students a task that's going to induce a lot of cognitive burden to the point that they're unable to perform the task. And then after that, you kind of come in with some well-structured instruction. So, why was it that you alluded to that? And do you think that this casts any doubt over the work of LRI? Yeah, and I think that's an area to to um, to to interact with to better understand because <clears throat> there are certainly there are certainly clear findings along the productive failure route. And at the moment, in my own head, I'm trying to disentangle whether there's they that tent, that line of research also tends to use a different research approach, so it's design-based research, so a very different methodological approach to, to how, com compared to sort of large-scale correlational work that we might use or the classic experimental work that, for example, Sweller and, and colleagues would use. And so, I'm trying to, what I'm doing, trying to do, um, disentangle is methodological uh, differences between those sets of findings and also substantive differences and why that might be the case. And so, from a motivation perspective, I've, I've also struggled with productive failure because, because we, we tend to find that um, early successes are quite critical for efficacy in a task and sustaining a student in the early phases of learning, particularly when they're a novice and the work's difficult. Um, so from a motivation and also the fear of failure researchers would also say, you know, that we, no, we don't quite know how that, that productive failure works. And then now from a load reduction instruction phase, I'm, I'm, I'm also <clears throat> sort of wrestling with that to understand it better as well. So, so I guess it's more of a watch this space as, as sort of resolution is brought to that, to that area. One thing I might say though, and I said it earlier, it's not exactly productive failure, but you can actually start a lesson with, with creating some dissonance and arousing curiosity and saying, posing a question that you students won't possibly know the answer to right now, but that's where we're headed and I just wanted to pique your interest. And so there may be that element as well where where it's um where it's um operationalized in a way that might might actually have that dynamic rather than a kid thinking, wow, I'm pretty dumb and stupid. I don't know this dynamic. So that's one another thing I'd like to understand better with regards to productive failure. Watch this space as we as we learn more about each each of the channels. 
Well, before we move into our closing questions, I just thought it'd be worth asking, and we've kind of touched on myths and misconceptions. What do you think are some of the biggest misconceptions that that teachers or even researchers or uh, or students even hold in relation to cognitive load theory or, or, or load reduction instruction more, more generally? I think uh, I think one of them I touched on is that um, is that oh yes 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 I I I I do that already and and I sort of I've, I've spoken to that. Um, <clears throat> another is that explicit and discovery approaches are incompatible. I've mentioned that I believe it's a false dichotomy. Load reduction instruction quite comfortably puts it on the sequence of learning. The main nuance is, is simply the order in which those things happen. And so we argue bring discovery and query based after students have built it into long-term memory and automated that and a little more fluent on that. I think another myth is that things like load reduction instruction, oh, that's just the old drill and kill back, back. I, in the paper and in this emerging paper that we've now got data on, I like to see it as drill and skill rather than drill and kill. I think drill and kill got a bad, well, no, actually got, got a well-deserved bad rap back in the 70s because they would implement drill and repetition and structure and all that, but also uh, have the, 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 the dullest and most boring materials, you know, Dick can run. Watch Dick. It was it was it was mind mind numbingly boring, and so I think with matching that with the drill and repetition was just switching kids off. So I think we've got a better understanding. We've got so much better material and exciting and engaging material these days that you can bring that to repetition and not have the drill and kill. I think a um, another myth is that um, yeah, high ability learners don't need load reduction instruction. Oh, they know it already. We can just dive into the deep end. Um, and I think, uh, as I've explained, the main difference with between the higher and the low ability kids is the speed at which they're able to automate knowledge and processes. Um, they still begin as a novice, but we can move them to expert or developed status a little faster. So LRI is still important for them. And so I think there's some of the, the myths that, that, that are important to 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 you know to contest uh, when we're when we're you know promoting LRI. Might just move into the if no one else has got any other questions, we might just move into the, the closing questions. You've already touched on on a teacher that kind of had a positive impact in your life, so I might go to the next question, uh, which is if you could go back to your first year researcher self, what advice would you give them? This is like if you could tell your twelve year old um, self something, what would you tell them? I'm always been utterly puzzled by that question. I, I, to me, my 12-year-old self should be talking to me. I've developed these ideas and the, my biases and bad habits and all this sort of stuff. Why would I possibly tell my 12-year-old self that my 12-year-old wouldn't have known better? And so, uh, and I was probably even happier as a 12-year-old now that I think about it. So my 12-year-old self would talk to me. I wouldn't be telling my 12-year-old self much. Same thing. I think as a first-year researcher, or a first-year student at uni, I sat in lectures thinking, what has this got to do with anything? What? This, this researcher seems irrelevant, or they, don't, they can't relate any of this to the world. This, I cannot see how this can contribute to anything. Sometimes I was wrong, of course, and the more I learned, I said, ah, now I see it. But a lot of times I wasn't wrong. Um, I, this, there was not, you know, there was, there was an irrelevance, there was an abstractness, 
to so much of what I experienced in first year. And so the danger of someone being further into their career is that I've, I've acquired all these, these assumptions, I've acquired all these biases, there's a policy a funding and higher education game I have to navigate uh, strategically, which inevitably influences what you research and how you research it. And rather than me telling my first year, I believe my first year old self should keep talking to me and say, you know, stay relevant. And yes, there is this regime swirling around you, but, but try and stay pretty true through that. That's so. I'd, I'd invert the question, like I would invert. What would you tell your twelve-year-old self? Uh, uh, question. Creative answer and 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 fantastic as well. I'll ask a follow-up question. To that though, what's one of the important things, or what are a few of the important things you t- tell your PhD candidates when they first come to you? When I when they first, the main thing I say is, look, pick a ballpark you're interested in. Um, and uh, and so, because that's going to have to sustain you. It's a it's a long haul. The second is um, don't overestimate what an an original question is. And so, a lot of times, really important questions are posed. Oh, but someone else has done that, and and so they'll take it off the table. When in actual fact. After a couple of, so they bring that question that someone else has done, but they, after a few meetings we have with them, they're applying it to a new sample. They're moving it, for example, from just being a student level analysis to also testing that issue across classrooms and schools. And they're throwing in one or two new variables or novel variables that can, uh, that can test classic, classic ideas. And so I tell them, you know, don't overestimate, particularly initially, what an original idea is. You can bring a, a, a good, solid question that's been looked at before, but uh, you know, before too long, when you bring some of your intellectual muscle to it, there'll be it'll be new. There'll be newness in it, and we don't we don't progress in leaps of bounds. We progress iteratively. You're going to just build a little bit on what someone else did, did before, and the other thing I'll say to them. Um, particularly at the end of the thesis, there'll be a moment, there'll be maybe a window of about six weeks where when you put that thesis in, maybe even possibly even a master's thesis, in some cases an honours thesis, where for about, I don't know, four to six weeks, no one else on the planet will know more than this than you. In another six weeks, someone else will put in their PhD and they'll have, they'll have one extra re- reference or two and so they now technically know a little bit more. And so I really encourage them to really be productive in that, in that space. You're coming off a writing momentum. You're now literally at the top of the mountain in terms of that. Even your examiner who knows all the mountains around and is, and is at the, you know, you know, towards the top, technically, you've probably found something new that even your, your expert examiners are being informed about. So I'll say also at the end of it, really capitalise on the fact that for a, for a little while, you are nu- numero uno and, uh, and, and enjoy it, uh, bask in it and, uh, and, and make the most of it. Cool. Talking, talking about staying on top of the info, what, what's your information diet like? Do you, are you on Twitter? Are you on email lists? Where do you, how do you stay on top of things? So, um, so how I stay on top, so I will 
I'm, I review a lot of articles for journals. And so it, it, you're getting the, the, there's a lot of poor research that you have to review, but you're also getting the best research coming. And so, and, and you're getting it first. And so being an re active reviewer is very important. I encourage uh, researchers and, and, and particularly early career researchers to do it as much as possible. Attending conferences is another. Colleagues having a little bit of a cycle um, in terms of you know, just getting a good routine. Colleagues will flick your things and just URLs. I really enjoy my um, association magazines. So Monitor on Psychology for American Psych Association the psychologist for the British Psych Society. They have like pages and pages of research summaries. And so I can like read a paragraph and say, oh, that looks interesting. I'm on some mailing lists, but I'm quite, but they're more sort of, uh, sort of specific mailing lists. And, uh, and particularly when I'm cracking into a new area, I might get onto a mailing list. So I'm on an ADHD mailing list, for example, so that I can get new stuff as it's, as it's coming in. And, uh, and so um, I also like checking out on the, those What Works sites and the clearinghouses. So the What Works sites, they've usually got the best integration and syntheses. And also I receive uh, sort of, there's a couple of, uh, just a, a handful of people that I'll be on their sort of, their, their sort of blog type things. So, so that's how, oh, so, so one of them is um, Robert Slaven. He's got... Um, Yes, indeed, indeed. And so I'll, I'll get his, uh, his weekly or fortnightly update, and that's got a summary of, you know, he cherry-picks the things that interest him, no doubt, and, uh, and so many of the things that interest him seem to align with the things I, that I don't. And they're often uh, sort of off-area for me, and they're, they're more broadly informative. So, so these are the sorts of ways I get my info. And finally, any calls to action, anything you'd like our listeners today or the attendees here today go away and do? Yeah, look, I'm a firm believer in taking your stuff, um, it, it, moving it from these, these academic um, uh, outlets that we're encouraged to publish in, and we must, because that's the, that's the place where we, that's the audit trail of, and, the, and, the, and the technical detail of, uh, of our findings um, and our thoughts. But I, when I, as much as possible, when I've published a, a paper that has, um, certainly has some practical implications, then I will spend three to four hours cutting it down to 600 to 800 words and shooting it to a professional magazine or newsletter. They, they love this stuff. And so I've got a, I've got a list of about 15, 15 um, professional and lay outlets ranging from sort of Parents and Citizens magazine through to um, InPsych, which is Australian Psych Society one, through to various websites, Education HQ, Education Matters, the Teacher Online magazine through ACR. And so I'll, I'll cut an article down, 600 to 800 words, nice reader-friendly, real take-home, and, uh, and also send it that way as well. And so I think, so I would encourage everyone to take with sense, spend three to four hours, and you get very good at writing for that medium after a while. So it takes less and less time. But um, I guess in my view, the taxpayer funded the research that was conducted. And so um, one way or the other, either through the taxpayer, the professional outlets, so teachers will, will use the findings, or directly to parents and communities themselves, they, uh, I believe they should get the research back. Andrew Martin, it's been fantastic talking to you today. I know I've got a deeper and more nuanced understanding of LRI and motivation and engagement. And I also really appreciate how 
how much of a premium you've placed on relevance of research and disseminating it. Uh, so thanks for joining us in the ERRR today. It's a pleasure. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the ERRR podcast with Andrew Martin. As always, you can find show notes with links to all of the resources that were mentioned at www.ollilovell.com forward slash podcast. And if you did enjoy this episode, I'd love for you to write a review on iTunes. If you've got any questions, comments, thoughts, or reflections of today's show, I'd love to get a tweet from you. You can get me with the handle at Ollie underscore Lovell. It's always a pleasure to hear from ERRR listeners. Thanks for your time and listening today. Have a wonderful week. And until next time, keep learning.